What I'm arguing is that urbanization is a contentious political process where people are making conflicting and competing claims to the same piece of land or territory. In a post-colonial context like Africa, land had been taken and given to different populations, different families, and different individuals many times in the last hundred years. And it's very difficult to determine who has the rightful ownership to a piece of property, which means that the ability to claim depends on a certain amount of political power, a certain amount of economic power, but also a certain amount of group-based identity claims as well. Welcome to Skas Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode I talk to Jeffrey Paller, researcher within the program on governance and local development at the University of Gothenburg and associate professor of politics at the University of San Francisco. He is a fellow here at SCAS during this academic year, 2022-2023. Jeffrey Paller specializes in African politics and sustainable urban development. His research examines the practice of democracy and accountability in African cities. He has conducted fieldwork in Ghana, Kenya, Uganda, Nigeria and South Africa. In 2019, he published the book Democracy in Ghana, Everyday Politics in Urban Africa. And he also curates the weekly news bulletin This Week in Africa. Jeffrey Peller has a PhD in political science from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and served as a postdoctoral fellow within the Earth Institute at Columbia University. As a fellow at SCAS, he will be working on his book manuscript that examines the contentious politics of African urbanization. And this is also what we will talk about in this podcast episode. And this is the fourth episode in our theme, Africa. So welcome to SCAS Talks and the studio, and thank you for joining me and our listeners. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Yeah, I'm an associate professor at University of San Francisco and currently a researcher at the Governance and Local Development Institute. And I've spent more than 10 years studying the politics and questions about development in African cities. I'm excited to learn more about this uh, topic. So very broadly, what is your research about? My research examines African politics and specifically the transformation of African societies from rural to urban societies. I'm really focused on the politics and development in African cities. African cities are extremely important because they are growing rapidly and more and more people are living in these spaces. And they're also the most vibrant areas of politics today. And you have lived for one year in Ghana and have been to Africa several times. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your visits there and your extended stays? Yeah, so all of my research is informed by ethnographic research, which is immersing myself in the lives of the people under study. And this in many ways shapes the questions that I ask and the conclusions that I draw. So in 2011 to 2012, I lived in Accra, Ghana for one year, where I would visit three neighborhoods on a daily basis. And during this experience, I would eat lunch with local leaders and 
community activists and ordinary voters and citizens. I would attend meetings with the youth. I would go to hangout spots and watch football games with various people in these communities. And it's this experience that really shapes all the research that I do. It brings me closer to the issues that are important to people. It informs the types of questions that I ask with respect to political accountability and public service provision and other more kind of academic concepts. And this experience, I think, is what in the end shaped my first book, which is about the everyday politics of urban Africa. Maybe it'll help to tell you a quick story of kind of what I'm talking about. So when I did preliminary research, when I was preparing for my dissertation, I took questions from the Afrobarometer, a public opinion survey that I was going to ask in three different neighborhoods in Ghana. And what happened was I went into these three different neighborhoods and people answered the questions in the exact same ways. Yet I knew that there were different practices of politics occurring in these spaces. So for example, I would ask questions about how much do you trust your politician and how much do you value democracy? And people were answering these very similarly. But in my daily experience, it was clear that some neighborhoods were better governed than others, that some had electricity, they had leaders that cared for them, they had people who would come together to get things done in their neighborhood. And none of these factors were coming out in the conventional survey techniques that I used. So I went back to the drawing board, ripped up my dissertation prospectus and wrote a new one because I started uh, realizing that there were different factors at play, factors that I had not envisioned that I would never have known if I didn't spend time in these communities. Things like, does your leader live in the house in the neighborhood? Does your chief care for you? Are there people in the community who you can go to if the electricity is turned off? These kind of daily needs and desires. Yeah, that's a very interesting way to study a society, to, to be part of it. Uh, you also learned the local language? I studied Chui, Akan Chui, for several years at University of Wisconsin-Madison before I arrived in Ghana. And uh, knowing the local language, although I wasn't fluent, really helped me establish trust and rapport with my interviewees. I could crack jokes with people in the neighborhoods. I could order food in Chui. And this really opened up trust. I found that what allowed me to build trust the most was eating with people. Many of these neighborhoods were considered the dirtiest and unsanitary in Accra. And even many elite Ghanaians didn't feel comfortable eating in these neighborhoods. And they were very surprised when a white person came in and was immediately eating the same food during the same time. Yes, as a white person, as a white American, how is it to live in, in Ghana and in neighborhoods like that? I'm just curious. So certainly being an outsider, you could not get around it. I was in a position of privilege. I was a white male, and these are in many ways gendered spaces. And everyone was very opening, but it was obvious that in some ways I was different. And I constantly had to check myself and be aware of what that position of power was bringing me and how I, in some ways, became a resource or at least a tool in the local politics that I was studying. And I had to be very careful 
about these concerns and really always think about the ethics behind it. I would say that people were extremely welcoming, so I never had a problem. In fact, I had a lot of fun. I met lots of great people. It's been a lot more welcoming of a society than other places that I've been, but I had to constantly think about what my role as a researcher was in these spaces. Just before getting some more details, I thought we can listen to some facts about urbanization in Africa. And I found this clip on YouTube from the OECD, and we can listen at least to a part of it so our listeners get the flavor. We know that Africa has the fastest rate of urban growth globally. In less than 15 years, by 2035, half of Africa's population will be living in cities and urban areas. Between now and 2035, we expect 380 million persons to be added to Africa's urban population. But there are not enough jobs in the formal sectors in the city. And this is a challenge because uh, it requires equally swift measures and responses to plan and manage urbanization. We have enormous variety over the continent because different countries are in different stages of economic development. What really sets it apart is the youthful population in Africa's cities and towns. With our youthful population and most of them involved in precarious and makeshift entrepreneurial work, we have to grow the scale and the scope of businesses in African cities. 60% of the GDP of the continent is now produced in cities. In other words, if you don't address the challenges that facing the cities, you will put into jeopardy the whole economy of Africa. Only Africa, which is not so much embedded in this system, can adopt a different trajectory, more sustainable, more carbon responsible with a minimum footprint on the environment. The challenges of the African continents are multiple. They include uh, the informal housing uh, and the housing issue, which is about 50 million of uh, affordable housing gap on the continent. There's also infrastructure uh, deficiencies uh, on all sorts from water, sanitation, uh, roads, uh, solid waste and others. There's of course the question of climate change, which is impacting especially the poor population that are living at the periphery of cities. When you talk about inclusivity, you are talking about rights to the city, you are talking about integration, you are talking about employment. If you talk about uh, safety, we're talking about urban security, we're talking about transportation, and we're talking about health especially the medium, the small and medium settlements. The big issue is that there is not much data covering them. So there is the need for emphasis on creating a database for the small and medium-sized cities so that action can be taken. So the title of the clip we just heard is Future of Africa Cities, What the Experts Say, and is available on the YouTube channel of the OECD. So this provided us with some basic information about the rate of urban growth in Africa. Do you have any comments on that? Africa's urbanization is often framed as an incredible economic opportunity, one where Africa's urbanization will lead 
the continent out of poverty and into a new future, one where the challenges of the past, the poverty and underdevelopment that really emerged due to a legacy of colonialism and failed economic policies can be overcome as people live and work in cities, cities that are much more networked into the global economy. The other side is that it presents a challenge, a challenge where people are living in slums, in unsanitary conditions, with lack of access to health and other opportunities. This is a greater challenge in the context of climate change, where many of these cities are in coastal areas that are facing severe sea level rise and other issues that lead to flooding and really terrible storms that can wipe away entire neighborhoods. And it's this challenge versus opportunity dichotomy that is at the forefront of international development policy. It really has emerged as a way to call for more rights for urban dwellers as well for urban planning. But I think what this dichotomy misses is the importance of politics, the dynamic engagement between state governments and local populations on the ground who are fighting for these opportunities every day, as well as the people who are left behind in this process. And really at the forefront of my book is this question of what impact does rapid urbanization have on people in the neighborhoods within these cities? Why are some neighborhoods and populations benefiting from this incredible opportunity while others continue to face and suffer from the challenges that we see? Exactly, because that was my next question. Where do you insert yourself in this debate about urbanization of Africa? Theoretically, there's this debate that urbanization will lead to modern forms of government. There's a long-standing theoretical framework in the social sciences called modernization theory, which suggests that as people move to the cities, societies will become more liberal, more progressive, more gender equal, and political systems will become more democratic. And in a lot of ways, the historical record bears this out. The experience of the West, the process of industrialization led to a situation where people would move to the cities, they would be pulled by jobs and factories, and women would work in these opportunities, and people, as they lived in cities, would start collectively acting and demanding more freedoms from their governments. And over time, this led to more democracy, more freedoms, and in many ways, the rise of the West as a whole. Now, the experience in sub-Saharan Africa is different for a number of reasons. First is that the urbanization is happening without this large-scale industrialization. So people are being pushed from the countryside to cities looking for jobs and economic opportunities, but really because of failed agricultural policies, conflict in their regions, and the hollowing out of the state during certain periods of Africa's past, like the 1980s and 90s with structural adjustment. So on the one hand, there is this idea that urbanization will lead to more democracy, less kind of ethnic parochial politics. The flip side of that comes out of a tradition of structural or Marxist theories where global capital and those who are attached to the global elite 
will dispossess poor people from their land. And there's also a lot of evidence historically that this is how cities have formed over time as well. The ghettoization of poor people in certain societies will eventually turn to gentrification and the mass displacement of people. And I, in some ways, am coming in as a middle ground between these large-scale urban theories to suggest that while both have some truth historically and even in cities that I work in and in cities across the continent, it's a much more dynamic process. And the people and politics on the ground is what is shaping why some populations and neighborhoods and cities become better governed than others. They are not passive actors in this process, but rather actively bargaining and negotiating for a better life. So you're looking more at the grayscales in between the two two extremes? In a lot of ways, I'm looking at the process of politics between local neighborhoods and more national level governments. So just to give you a sense of the things that I'm talking about, in a lot of ways, urbanization is changing how politicians can relate to their citizens. In rural areas, the spaces are much more homogenous. They're people of the same ethnic group, of the same religious group. In urban areas, there's a lot more diversity. There's people who are living next to people of a different ethnic group. There are Christians and Muslims living together. There are different types of Christianity that are filling these spaces. And politicians have to mobilize and cater to these populations in different ways. So you see different types of politicians. In a place like Kenya, the former governor, Mike Sonko, was able to gain power by building up a business of matatus, which is the local public transport system, being able to provide jobs to many different types of youth across the kind of ethnic spectrum so that he could gain support from many different types of people in Nairobi. He could have control and power of people at the grassroots so that more regional and national politicians relied on him to get people out to rallies and other sorts of things. You see the same thing in South Africa with a gentleman that I worked with in my very first time on the African continent who established a car washing business because he could employ 20 to 30 people at once. And not only did this just make him a little money, but it was able to give him political power in his community. And he was able to then step into a position of a local ANC counselor and build his way through the political party. And it is this type of mobilization that you are noticing across African cities and that I'm paying very close attention to over the course of my research and for this new book. So what is your main argument in the book then? Just a bit short. So I'm arguing that local political connections, the connections that neighborhoods have with people in, in government through either patronage relationships or democratic representation as one important factor, along with the claims that neighborhoods make to the land and territory in which they reside, is what explains why some populations are able to remain in place in a city, gain public services from the government, and improve their livelihoods. And how do you explain this argument? Can you give our listeners some example? 
A neighborhood that I spent many years studying is Old Fadama, the largest squatter settlement in Accra. And during the course of my research, I noticed that there were constant demolition threats against this neighborhood. There was a court order for this neighborhood to be displaced, for everyone to be relocated to another area, and for them to redevelop the place to kind of improve the footprint of the city. But the government was never able to move these people from the land. And the reason for this was that there were always politicians who would get involved and protect people on the ground. However, they were never able to gain recognition in the city government to gain formal streetlights, formal roads, and other sorts of things to really improve their livelihoods. This is different from a neighborhood in Nigeria, Otodobame in Lagos, Nigeria, where when the government decided that they wanted to redevelop this portion of the land and local developers had the capital to do so, they were able to send security forces to demolish and move people from this territory. And what people told me on the ground was that the neighborhood had no local representatives. They had no people to kind of protect them from harm like the residents in Old Fadama. In addition, the local chiefs who advocated demolishing these authorities had stronger claims with respect to ownership and control of the land. And you see that how people make claims to the land and territory is a very contentious struggle. It's one where people have been living for decades, up to a century, but they don't have the proper identification or pieces of paper. Which brings me to the title of the book, The Contentious Politics of African Urbanization. What I'm arguing is that urbanization is a contentious political process where people are making conflicting and competing claims to the same piece of land or territory. In a post-colonial context like Africa, land had been taken and given to different populations, different families, and different individuals many times in the last 100 years. And it's very difficult to determine who has the rightful ownership to a piece of property, which means that the ability to claim depends on a certain amount of political power, a certain amount of economic power, but also a certain amount of group-based identity claims as well. Yes, exactly. Another thing that just popped up in my head is that, of course, I mean, Africa is a whole continent and there are a lot of different countries. Are you looking at any differences between different parts of Africa? The book that I'm working on is an ambitious project. It's a project that is trying to provide a template to study urbanization in a continent that has 54 countries and thousands of different cities, which means that there's thousands of different languages and All these cities have different dynamics, different histories, and different peoples. So it's an ambitious project to try to come up with a framework that works for all of these. What I'm doing is mixing a few different strategies and methods to deal with this challenge. On the one hand, we are developing with a group of scholars 
on a project funded by the Research Council of Norway, the African Cities Database, where we are collecting data on over 300 cities across the continent to see the similarities and differences with respect to the demographic tradition, with respect to political variables like authority structures and voting patterns and electoral competition, as well as conflict and other measures. I am then zooming in on certain case studies that I know very well, like Accra and Lagos and Nairobi and Cape Town, to kind of tease out the mechanisms that connect urbanization to these different political practices. I am then relying on a certain amount of shadow cases to further develop the argument. And what I mean by that is cases that kind of represent and illustrate the argument. Now, I think the biggest challenge is zooming out from a context that I know really well, the neighborhoods that I've worked in that I'm really confident in, that I feel like I know that my story is correct, to places that I haven't been, to places that have different histories and experiences. And in a lot of ways, I'm relying on the anthropological and historical experts of the region, as well as lots of collaborations with scholars on the ground. Because, of course, you can't go everywhere and live for a couple of months or a year or so. That's right. And one of the things that I've noticed over the last 10 years, especially as I've been working on both my own research, but also on This Week in Africa, which is a weekly newsletter that I put together, is that there's a lot of similar patterns of politics that I'm noticing in different cities. And I think we're actually at the point in time where we need to move beyond case studies and start comparing. We need to find creative ways to compare what's happening in Lusaka to Lagos to Nairobi, in addition to focusing on smaller cities cities that have very different dynamics from the megacities where most of the research is done. So one of the interesting things about the book is that I have a chapter on megacities like Lagos and Cape Town, but also on secondary or emerging cities, cities that are under 500,000 people but are rapidly growing. And one thing that people don't necessarily know is that most of the urban growth is actually happening in these smaller cities. It's these cities that are being recategorized from rural areas or rural villages to small towns and then to cities where natural population increase is creating cities and spaces that currently existed and where there's regional migration patterns first to these kind of smaller cities. So I've started doing work in cities like Bogotanga and Obuasi in northern Ghana as well as comparing to cities like Nakuru and Eldoret in Kenya to see whether the dynamics are different. And in fact, these cities are much more reliant on central government transfers and institutions in the countries themselves because they cannot rely on foreign capital and emerging kind of diaspora population and middle class and upper class that exists in some of these larger cities. And I'm excited to work more on that work as well on a recently funded project by the Swedish Research Council that is looking at emerging cities across the world. Yes, because I guess there must be similarities to other places in the world as well. 
Yeah, and that's the exciting thing about this project, to come up with a framework for the study of African cities. But I'm hoping that what I uncover will not just explain patterns in Africa, but could help African cities be compared to other cities across the world. And I'm pretty confident that urbanization is a contentious process everywhere. I notice it in the last six years of my life living in San Francisco, where a new population of people is moving into neighborhoods where people have lived for generations. Sometimes this leads to displacement, but other times it leads to just struggles for local control in a neighborhood, struggle for who will control the PTA at the local school, what types of activities will happen in the local parks at the community centers. And this struggle for local control is something that is evident in the African cities that I work in, but also evident everywhere. It sounds like a very exciting project and book, something new to to think about. I'm hoping to get people to start thinking about the African continent in a different way. I think for so many years, we've thought about Africa as a rural continent. And what that has meant politically is that it's a place where there's local chiefs or kingdoms who control their populations, and then politicians reach out and engage with these kind of indigenous areas. From a development standpoint, what this means is that we focus on agricultural policy and food security and other green revolutionary ideas. And what I'm asking people or hoping to do is show a different picture and a more empirically accurate picture of what the continent faces. And urban Africa is bound to reshape politics, but we just don't know how that will look. It will call for different development interventions that focus on housing insecurity in urban areas, which will focus on a different type of food insecurity, one that might have to deal with obesity and access to different types of diets rather than simply not enough food. So I hope that this book will provide a more accurate reflection of what is happening on the continent, but also provide some ideas for new policies moving forward so that African societies will develop in a way that really suits the realities on the ground. That sounds very exciting. I think you should try to do a lot of outreach there so people get a better picture also. I've learned so much about Africa just by doing these podcasts, so I think that's brilliant. I think the outreach part is extremely important. So many times Western researchers go into the continent and they just extract information, but they never share their results. And one of the things I try to do in all my work is do stakeholder forums and meetings at different points of the research process, because I learned so much from the comments and interactions that I have with people on the ground. In addition, I think we have a responsibility to work with, collaborate with African researchers. A lot of this project is working with scholars who are based in the continent, both at NGOs who are working on development issues, but also at African institutions. And it's much more of a partnership relationship rather than an extractive one. And all of this work will continue to do that. When I finish the book, there will be various events on the continent because I think we need to break down those boundaries between Western institutions and African ones. (laughs) 
You are listening to SCUS Talks and the fourth episode in our theme Africa, featuring the research of Jeffrey Paller. In the previous episodes within this theme, we have heard Rebecca Lee about death and memory in modern southern Africa, Stephanie Wynne-Jones about past and present ecologies on Zanzibar, and Andreas Eckert about the labor market in post-colonial Africa. These are episodes 21, 18 and 14, if you want to listen. Other content of interest might be episode 39, where Michael Watts tells us more about oil and its afterlives, the past and the future of oil in Nigeria. But now, back to Jeffrey Paller and the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. You're here during this academic year, 22-23. How has your experience been so far of this multi- and interdisciplinary environment? First off, it's just an incredible privilege to just be able to work on a big project without the noise of academic life. And that's been very exciting and very productive for me. But more importantly, I think, is meeting other scholars who think about similar theories, topics, ideas, but from a very different place and a very different perspective. So I'll get questions like, have you thought about urbanization in the Mediterranean in the 1400s? And there are ideas that I've never thought of that are quite relevant for at least thinking about my work. And it's an engaging and dynamic environment. When I gave my seminar there was a long line of people waiting to ask questions. And they're questions that I wouldn't get in my discipline. They're questions that I wouldn't get to an African studies audience or a political science audience. Questions that forced me to think about my topic in a new way, forced me to be a little more humble in my conclusions that I draw, and really forced me to not just reframe or clarify how I speak about my topic and communicate it to a broader audience, but also how I should sharpen certain measures and theories themselves. It's good that you can find these environments that fit your, uh, well, that fit your project and of course where you can also contribute with your knowledge. There's a lot of great work being done here in Sweden. I'm lucky enough to have the Nordic Africa Institute right across the way, the Forum of African Studies the Department of Government at Uppsala University. I feel very lucky to be part of SCAS, but also have different connections to various parts of Uppsala and Sweden more generally. Thank you very much for joining me in the studio today and of course our listeners on SCAS Talks. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thank you. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. In this episode, I have talked to Jeffrey Paller, researcher within the Program on Governance and Local Development at the University of Gothenburg and Associate Professor of Politics at the University of San Francisco. We have learned more about the urbanization of Africa and his current book project, The Contention Politics of African Urbanization. You can subscribe to the newsletter This Week in Africa on Jeffrey Paller's homepage, jeffreypaller.com. And this was the fourth episode within the theme Africa. 
The list of podcast episodes and themes is constantly growing, reflecting the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment at SCAS. We started off in the summer of 2020 with the coronavirus pandemic and went on to also feature the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa, life in outer space, life science, infrastructures and also Asia, citizens and state relations. We are sure that there is something of interest for everyone. Find your favorite topic or surprise yourself with something that is new to yourself. As always, we are very happy if you can recommend Skull's talks to your colleagues and friends. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. Skull's talks is available on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify and most podcast apps. I would like to thank Jeffrey Paller once again for talking to me and thanks to you for listening. Bye for now. Thank you.